Last week, we laid the groundwork for how it is we move beyond this tiredness and frustration that we all feel in our current cultural moment. And I suggested to you that that started with Jesus. It starts with a relationship with Jesus, and then it goes on from there into a relationship with his people. And not just any relationship, but one built upon sacrificial love. And this idea of sacrificial love that Jesus perfectly, perfectly embodied um, for us to see and for us to restore our relationship with God, that is such a, a countercultural thing that um, everything about it, right, the fact that we put other people first, that we ask the strong to look after the weak, that we build each other up, really, really countercultural and sometimes can seem difficult, sometimes can seem easy. But it's Jesus' answer for us to move forward, right? We talked about how sacrificially loving others is how we experience and express the newfound life in Jesus. That was our big idea last week. And I suggested to you that last week we were going to concentrate on the experience part. This week we're going to move into not only expression, but that expression to all, to everybody who is interested in coming to know and grow in Jesus without exception. Expression without exception. That's where we're going today. So last week we left off. Paul had made his way to Jerusalem with his team. Um, They had come from all over the northeastern Mediterranean, from all these different churches, all these different backgrounds, to show the Jerusalem church that they love Jesus and that they love the members, the brothers and sisters in the Jerusalem church. And they brought this uh, financial gift with them. Not only that, but Paul shows up and the elders of the church suggest to him that he goes through a purity rite with some other guys from Jerusalem who are about to do it. And so that's what Paul did. And they committed to seven days. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. We are in Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 27. I'm going to read to you a little bit, and then I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, and then I'm going to read a little bit. All right? You with me? All right, here we go. Acts 21, verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They were stirred up, and the whole crowd seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This man is the one who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops. The whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. All right, so Paul does his thing, right? He shows up. He creates a ruckus. He almost gets killed. The Romans come in and save him. If you guys have been with us for a little while, this pattern should be pretty familiar. This is what Paul does. He goes someplace, he creates a ruckus, he almost gets killed, the Romans save him. This time, he asks the Romans if he could defend himself, if he could say something to the crowd. And after a brief conversation with the the Roman official, the official says, sure, go ahead. So what Paul does is he tells his story of how he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And there's a couple of pretty unique things about this. One, um, it's important that we know that we hear Paul's meeting with Jesus when he got knocked off his horse. 
three different times in the book of Acts. Once, we hear it from Luke. Next, we hear it from Paul in this particular instance to a Jewish audience. And in a couple of chapters, I think it's like chapter 26, we hear it again from Paul, but to a very high-ranking uh, Gentile audience, not a non-Jewish audience. What does that mean? We got the three-peat, right? When things are repeated in the Bible, it's done because we're supposed to take notice. It's because that's important. Luke really wants us to pay attention to this fact that who Paul was, how he came to meet Jesus in this miraculous, miraculous meeting, how it happened, and then what Paul became and all the things that he did after it. And so Paul is telling a story. The other thing that's really critical about the way Paul retold the story in these verses that I'm paraphrasing for you is this, is that he concentrated on the aspects of his Jewish heritage. He was trying to emphasize that he was still being a quote-unquote good Jew. He was fulfilling everything that the law required of him while he was following Jesus. And where we're going to pick the text up, he's back in the temple and he's praying, doing just what he's supposed to do. All right, and so he is, um, this is Paul. We're picking up the story in chapter 22, verse 17. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and they shouted, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. All right, so what's um, a lot of action going on, no lack of drama in the, in the story of Acts, in the book of Acts. Paul starts, right, the whole, this whole interchange starts because some people thought they saw Paul with a Gentile, and they made the assumption that he brought a Gentile into part of the temple where Gentiles were not allowed. This was a big, huge deal. We're going to get to that in a little bit. Um, that's the beginning. It ends with another Gentile reference, but even further, Paul goes to say that God told me to go to the Gentiles, and that just made people go nuts. So we have these bookended references, right, of the Gentile um, Paul reaching out to the Gentiles. This was a really big deal. This was, Paul was inviting people who were considered unclean, impure, irredeemable into the family of God. And it was not sitting well with those who were already there in the family of God. And so as we look at this, right, we look at um, every time Paul is kind of encountered and the rest of the, the people who tell God's story in the book of Acts, they do a couple of things. There's a couple of similar things that they do. They, um, they connect Jesus to the law. They connect him to the prophets. They connect him to the psalmist. They connect him to the Bible that they had at that time, and they connect the dots. And that's, that's what Paul did. And if we look at those dots, we can look back in hindsight, and we can see the law and the prophets and the psalmist all talking about how the Gentiles were supposed to be 
recipients of God's blessing through the people of Israel. God chose the people of Israel not just to keep God all to themselves, but also to bring God, to be a light to the rest of the world, to bring God to the rest of the world. And somewhere along the line, that got, that got fouled up. And it, um, this, this division, this like wall, it's called the dividing wall of hostility. I think it's in Ephesians chapter two. The, this wall of hostility came down between Jew and Gentile. And Paul uses this false dichotomy of Jew and Gentile as a springboard to break down every division that existed within the Greco-Roman world, right? So remember, we're talking about the ancient Mediterranean. It was the Greek empire overtaken by Roman. So much Greek culture still there, Roman influence. The Jewish religion is, is mixed all in throughout there. All of those cultures and the ones that surround it come with their own sets of um, segmentation and division and, and stratification. But Paul goes to great lengths in um, many of the letters that he, that he writes. He writes in, um, in Romans, in First and Second Corinthians, in Galatians, in Ephesians. There's verses that are very similar to this that I'm about to show you. We're going to take a look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, and we're going to look at Colossians 3, 11. And there's some references uh, that are linked in the notes. All say very similar things, but these two verses... There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Very similarly in Colossians 3, 11. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So Paul goes to great lengths to lay out these, um, these comparisons, these dichotomies, these opposite ends of the spectrum to say that those things that counted, that you counted as so important, that drove people so, so far apart, Christ has brought near. In Jesus, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, those dividing walls have been torn down. And so there's no reason, there's no reason why Jew and Gentile should not sit down at the same table together. There's no reason why man and woman should not sit down at the same table together. I'm going to kind of run through each of those things really quick, right? He talks about Jew or Gentile. That's what we would consider ethnicity. So you go all the way back through the Old Testament, like I just referenced, into today. Um, what we see happen, and I think, I think the reference is like it's Numbers 18.7, um, 18.17, it was a verse that the rabbis kind of, um, John talked about interpretation and misapplication, right? It was a verse that they misapplied, and they built this wall based on this verse, a metaphorical but also a physical wall between Jew and Gentile. This was so extreme. Um, I have a picture of an of a inscription. This, was, this is an actual stone that was in the temple before it was destroyed, and basically the inscription says, if you are a Gentile, if you go past this line, it's on your head because you're going to die. Passing that line was punishable by death. They were not allowed to proceed any further into the temple than that line. And that kind of manner of thinking spread out everywhere. It overtook the Jewish mind that the Gentiles could not come any closer to them. In Christ, the division of ethnicity is destroyed and is no more. Jew and Gentile 
are welcome. They're called to sit down at a table together with the common bond of Jesus bringing them together. There is no male nor female. In the ancient world, especially in ancient Israel, um, women were treated despicably. The, the male-dominant culture was um, oppressive. Women didn't have any rights. They were not trusted to be witnesses. They did not um, own property. A, a woman was basically passed from her father to, to her husband, and they were treated as such, and they were divided. Walking in public, they were supposed to walk six feet behind and to the right. Um, there was a huge divide that was there. In Jesus' interactions, right, we watch the way Jesus interacts with women, and he destroys that in his actions. Paul comes along and reinforces that in his teaching, and he says that in Christ, right, male and female should be walking side by side, sitting down at the table together right next to the Jew and the Gentile, and sharing in that meal that Jesus calls them to, that Jesus brings them to. The division created by gender no longer exists in Christ. And then um, there was free and slave, right? So our equivalent of this would be class. The Greco-Roman world had six different classes, and there were laws which governed, you know, how the classes were to interact with each other, who could marry who. And if you wanted to try to buy your way up a, a level in the class, there were laws that, that governed that as well. And there, there was some kind of, you know, commingling of the classes, but it was very, very clear. You were, you were low, you were high. You were here, you were there. And it was, it was separated. Again, Paul includes these, these dichotomies, these opposite ends of the spectrum saying, no more. The, the slave owner and the free man, they sit down together at the table. That division in Christ is destroyed. This next one um, it's kind of hard for us to get our brains around, right? There's no barbarian or Scythian. And I equated this to like our background. Like some people have a rough background. Some people have, have an easier upbringing than others. The idea of barbarian and Scythian, from the Greek's perspective, anybody who wasn't Greek, didn't speak Greek, was a barbarian. So scholars kind of argue about this. The other, like Jew and Gentile, opposite ends of the spectrum, male and female, opposite ends of the spectrum, free and slave, but barbarian and Scythian both kind of mean the same thing. So some say, well, it was the, the barbarian was the best of the barbarians and the Scythian was the worst. Some people think that it was an ethnic um, divide within barbarians. Other people think that it was um, like a, this is kind of interesting, it was like a Scythian thing, right? That the Scythians thought themselves to be the, like the cream of the crop because in their world they didn't try to, there was no class differentiation. There was no division. There was no separation. Every, all they did was they, they were nomads and they hunted and they just took care of the things that they had to take care of. They didn't accumulate property. There was no uh, anything like that. And, but what they did do is they looked around them and they saw all these other cultures that had these segmentations and they looked down on them for... Um, for that mindset, for that class structure, for those sets of divisions. So they were kind of like indicting themselves in, uh, along, along the way. It's like today, when we have people who get all upset and um, are all about tolerance, right up until the point when somebody disagrees with them and then they're no longer tolerant of that person. That's kind of like what the Scythians were doing. Ethnicity, gender, class, background. And the last one, ideology. We have 
this idea of circumcised and uncircumcised. Basically, what that, what that means is the family of God went from being um, defined by an external um, works-oriented religion to being defined by an internal grace-based relationship with Jesus. Two very different ways to approach God. Same God, the one, one God of the Bible, but two very different ways to approach them. And the, the circumcised saw the uncircumcised as wrong, and therefore, just like we talked about last week, if you're wrong, you're on the other side, you're a terrible human being. So this idea of ideology separated people. You guys, humanity has not come very far, right? We still struggle with all of these differences. We still struggle with ethnic differences, gender, class, background, ideology. So what am I saying? I'm not, what I'm not saying is that we, are, we want to assimilate everyone into this, this just nebulous blob where everybody's exactly the same. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. Um, we want to invite people in from every background, from every experience, with every bit of baggage, and invite them in to what to experience that sacrificial love. There is no exception to who we should be willing to offer that sacrificial love of Jesus. What we do want to do is we want to look at every person who comes through that door, comes through the front door of Crossroads, and we want to honor the work of God that we see in them. Whether they've made a ton of mistakes, whether they're perfect or imperfect, we want to honor what we see of God's creation, created in God's image. Every single person, we want to honor that. Every single person that comes through that door, Jesus died for them. We want to honor what Jesus did, even for the people who would set themselves apart as enemies of Christ. Jesus hung on the cross for them just as much as he did for you and for me. We want to honor the work of the Holy Spirit that takes somebody who is far from God, and no matter how much baggage they have, moves them one step closer to Jesus, one step closer to Jesus, one step closer to Jesus. By sharing that sacrificial love, by welcoming people in, by being happy to see people, no matter how much baggage they have or don't have, how perfect or imperfect they are, we honor the God of the Bible. It's an act of worship. I'm gonna, the band's going to come back up here in a second and lead us in a couple songs, and then I'm going to get back up after them and just finish with a few brief thoughts. But I wanted to leave you with this quote from a Yale professor named Miroslav Volf. He survived um, some of the, the horrible, horrible tragedies that went on in the Serbian conflict um, 20, 30 years ago. And he wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace. It's a really, really powerful book. But he says this, Having been embraced by God, we must make space for others in ourselves and invite them in, even our enemies. Wow, you guys, thank you so much. That was, that was so awesome. How cool is our God? How cool is the, the fact that he created us with this space in us, with this need in us for him, and then the greatest supports that we have for, for following him, for trying to live that relationship with him, is 
our brothers and sisters. He builds this mechanism in, right? And if we would treat each other the way he would treat us, if he were in our place with that sacrificial love, that in turn fulfills the biggest responsibility that he gave us. Our, the biggest need that we have from other humans, right? The biggest need we have is met by God alone in restoring that relationship with him. The biggest human need we have, we express in sacrificial love to and for each other, right? And then that gets expressed outward. In Crossroads language, we look up for everything. We lean in for support, encouragement, and challenge. And that moves outward. I'm going to share with you three quick verses that demonstrate how this works. This is so cool, you guys. Watch this. Watch this. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. His intent, God's intent was that now through the church, me and you, sacrificially loving each other, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, so a couple things. A lot, we're coming from different places, different backgrounds, different beliefs and things like spiritual warfare. We are all too aware of the fact that evil is a very real thing. And behind evil, there is a very real being named Satan. And Satan has an army of demons that are at his disposal. And their job is to wage war against God and his angels. And their main battlefield is us. And they want to do everything that they can to, at the very least, make us apathetic to God. And at the most, make us hostile to God. What that verse is telling us is that as we love each other, as we treat each other the way Jesus would treat us, as we do that, we put them on notice. We put that enemy on notice that God's plan is in effect, God's plan is moving forward, and his kingdom is growing. Our sacrificial love, our leaning in, is an act of worship. We respond to the greatness and glory of God, and then it becomes this amazing, amazing weapon in the battle against evil. Right? All those things that we talked about that make us tired and that make us frustrated, when we treat each other the way God designed us to treat each other, we wage war on those things that make us tired and we begin to break out of this current cultural moment we're in. Okay, next one. This is Jesus talking. He had just washed the disciples' feet night before he died. Night before he dies, he washes the nasty, dirty, stanky feet of 12 dudes sitting around a dinner table. And this is what he says afterwards. He says, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. The way we treat each other. Guys, are you, are you, listen, look, look at me. <laughs> the way we treat each other is an act of obedience to Jesus that notifies the world that there is a different way to live. There's more than us versus them. There's, there's an us that welcomes the them in, regardless of who the them is. When we walk in obedience, when we follow Jesus' example together, right? Jesus is calling us to love each other, to serve each other, to do things like wash each other's feet, to stoop and take the role of the lowest servant for each other. The outside world looks in and says, what are they doing? And how can I get some? All right, last, last piece. 
This is from the book of Revelation. This is John. Um, and he is writing down the things that he saw in a vision of what's going on in heaven. It says, after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and they were waving palm branches in their hands. So this is a picture of what's going on in heaven, right? What's gonna, what things are going to look like when, when we get there. And it's a picture of every nation, every tribe, every people, tongue, language, and they're standing before the throne, right? Everything we talked about in the first part of this message, no division, no Jew, no Gentile, no male, no female, no, no this, no that. We're all together. We're all before God. We're all worshiping him. There's another part in the book of Revelation that talks about the wedding feast of the lamb. That's Jesus. And we all sit down at that great big table. We all sit down together and we share that meal. And Jesus is the, is the guest of honor at that meal. And we celebrate him and we celebrate each other and we enjoy that meal. Everybody together. And when we do things now, right, when we do things like sacrificially love each other, when we welcome in the stranger, when we welcome in somebody who's different, when we welcome in somebody who's got baggage of all different kinds, and we say, come on in, we're glad that you're with us. We want you to be a part of what's going on here. That is a confirmation, that is an acknowledgement, that is a, a, an echo of what Jesus did when he ate with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. And it is a, it's an echo of what Paul did and what Paul taught when he said there's no Jew or Gentile, and on and on and on. And it reveals what life will be like in heaven, what we have to look forward to when that idea of no more division is a reality and we all sit down together. You guys, God is so good. God is so good. He puts us together so that in our need, our need becomes our greatest tool for sharing him with others as we sacrificially love each other. Paul and Peter and Philip and Stephen and the men and women of the early church sacrificially loved each other. And it was hard, and they got over, they, you know what, they struggled with these divisions. Peter, Peter screwed up sometimes, and Paul called them on it, and, and they struggled with how do they enter, how do they bring all these, church is messy, it always has been, it always will be. Anytime you bring people together from different backgrounds, it's going to be messy. And if it wasn't messy, it wouldn't, it, there wouldn't be people there. Right, so as we come together, as we open our door and we welcome in people who see our expression of sacrificial love, we welcome in people without exception to become part of what is going on here. We begin to chip away at the tired. We begin to chip away at the frustration. And this is how Jesus literally changed the world through the men and women of the early church. They sacrificially loved each other and they change the course of history. If we can come together and do that, if we can come together and sacrificially love each other, we can change our little corner of the world here in Fairfield County. Let's pray. <clears throat> thank you, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you. God, would you, um, would you strengthen us? God, would you give us a vision for what it's like to be a people who love each other sacrificially. 
God, would you give us a vision for what it's like to be a people who sit down at a table and there's no division there? God, would you move in us and through us? Bind us together in your love that we might reach out to the world, that we might glorify you and we might grow your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.